Hello and welcome to the Soccer Coach Weekly Podcast. I'm Steph Fairburn. Thank you for joining us as we get insights and ideas from coaches working across the game to help you develop into the coach you want to be. In this episode, we speak to Sam Hudson. Sam has spent almost 10 years as a football coach. Roles coaching at camps and clubs in the US were followed by time spent at academies in the UK. Now at the Aston Villa Academy, Sam is also a coaching consultant and tactical analyst for The Coach's Voice, and has recently published his first book, Football in a Pandemic. I caught up with Sam to talk all about the role of the defender, how it's evolved, and how we as coaches can build defending into our practices. Sam, can you tell us a bit about you, your career to date, and your current football roles? Sure. So currently I, I work at Aston Villa um, as an under-14s coach. And then uh, alongside that, I'm a tactical analyst for, for the Coach's Voice, the coach education company based in the UK. Um, so they're my, my current roles, plus as, as we'll, we'll touch on, I've released, recently released a, a book looking at coaching and tactics. So that's my, my current um, environments. Before I've worked at a few other clubs in the UK, I've worked at, at Derby County and, and Burton Albion in their academies. Um, I've also worked in schools in, in the UK, uh, as well as time spent abroad coaching predominantly in the, in the US. Um, whilst, whilst at university, I did bits, coaching camps and, and summer holiday stuff, and then stayed out there working with teams and clubs, predominantly um, New York, New Jersey type regions there for a few years. Um, so I've worked in all sorts of environments from, from grassroots all the way up to, to pro academies and pretty much every age from and under five, under six, all the way up to, to 18s, 19s, uh, both boys and girls, particularly in the USA, had quite a varied experience. So across the last, I think it would be 10 years this year is when I first started coaching. Um, I've had quite a, quite a varied background. So I want to talk a bit about defending. And, you know, within those 10 years and across all of your different experiences, have you seen a shift in the styles and skills of young defenders coming through? And... What is it for you that sets out a player as a promising defender? Um, I think now, I guess with almost every position, you have to be a lot more well-rounded than um, maybe you used to be, kind of say, 10, 15 years ago. I think the, I think personally that role of a specialist, so you take a specialist defender, for example, I think that's slowly starting to disappear and you have to have a lot more skills and, and tools to your game. Um I guess from a defending perspective, you could probably go back to kind of the back pass rule changing in the, the early 90s. Obviously, the goalies couldn't, couldn't then pick the ball up. So so naturally, both goalies and defenders are going to have to use their feet a bit more. And then the goal kick rule that changed um, a couple of years ago, where they can receive in the penalty area from goal kicks. Again, there's, there seems to be more more rule changes that almost encourage defenders to, to get on the ball more as, as the rules of the game demand. So I guess those two have, have kind of had a big influence on um, what defenders do. I mean, they'll always, I have this discussion a lot, even with, with goalkeeper coaches, they will always have to defend. The, the, the defensive skills will always be there. But I guess it's the now the increase in the more in-possession skills and qualities that, that can complement a defender's play. And, and the same with the goalkeepers. They will always have to make saves and shots and catches and punches. But the the gradually using their feet more and more. So um, I think, I guess, it's being more well-rounded and, and being really good on and off the ball. Um, and from, from a defending perspective, I think 
being able to defend you know, what I class as high, medium, and low. So if you if you're low and you have to defend inside the penalty area, that will that will never change. Every team goes into low blocks at points. Even teams like Man City and Liverpool, the best teams, they will have to defend the penalty area. So the skills associated with that. But then as you see a lot more teams defending higher and, and pressing, so you might have to defend from higher positions up the pitch and you might have to press forward a bit more. Um, and again, it just comes back to being being really well-rounded and, and having lots of different attributes in different areas to, to a good standard. So you had to pick out like three attributes or three key principles for a defender. What would they be? Um I think I'd probably go. I'd, I'd probably come back to the principles of play. I, th- I think um, quite a lot. So predominantly, there's kind of four or five main principles for defending. So we'll give you a couple more than the three. Um, we'll, like as in, as in defending, I always layer it as defending as an individual, then defending as a pair, then defending as an uh, as a unit. So if you, if you can't necessarily defend as the individual, the the pair is compromised, and then the unit is compromised. So I'm going to focus in as an individual. The, the principles of play are applying pressure to the ball, to the opponent, or providing cover or balance if you're part of a pair or a unit. Staying compact with your teammates, both in front, behind, and then side side to side as well. Um, and then being able to delay attacks and then showing control and restraint, I think is a really important one, particularly with um, you watch kind of football from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the types of tackles that were made then compared to now, um, well, a lot of those tackles probably wouldn't <laughs> wouldn't last very long in, in the modern game. So that control and restraint element, I think, has grown in importance compared to um, potentially what it what it was due to the the game evolving and the, the styles kind of changing. Um, but I, I would always come back to those principles of play. And then, as I said, it's laid it from focusing those principles as an individual and then once you're, you're at a good, a good level as an individual, then you can look at the pair and then you can look at the unit. What do you make of the whole tackle debate? Because I've got to admit, I love it when I see like a good crunching tackle, obviously within the rules of the game. But what do you make of that line of what's fair and what isn't anymore? Uh, I think, well, it's just the, the way the modern games tend to have gone. It seems to be with with decisions and and the refereeing decisions get scrutinised more than ever. I think quite quite currently at the minute, we obviously they are coming in, and almost every decision gets scrutinised. And I think you'll always have that element of um, no matter what decision and how the tackle goes, there'll always be people that are for and against it because ultimately a lot of people are watching the game and supporting the, the team. Um, I think it's quite a, an English and maybe a British thing that we want that physicality in the game, and I I enjoy that side of things as well. Um, Compared to say some of the, the teams in in Europe that are I'd say less physical, but certainly kind of less prone, I guess, to to that aggressive side of the game. And maybe it's just something that we're brought up with in in this country. Um, but I, yeah, I think like everything, there's always a balance and there's always a, a fine line. It's it's an important part of the game, but like you say, within the rules and as soon as a game starts turning into that overzealous nature and stuff, then you do lose a bit of the quality and the beauty of the game. Um, so I think it's probably just more of a balance than, than anything, but um, it certainly should have a part in the game because ultimately it's a physical sport and there's 22 players running around and there's one ball. So more often than not, you're going to be, you know, off the ball action. So, um, and defending and being aggressive is, is part of it because 
the other team are, are trying to beat you. It's a competitive sport, so it shouldn't it shouldn't be taken away. And if we think about defending in our coaching practices, obviously every player in every position needs to know how to to defend. How can mm-hmm. we integrate defensive principles into into our practices? Uh, I think one way you've got to try and skill the coach. You've got to try and make defending more fun than a lot of players kind of potentially view it as. Um, I'd always suggest that anytime we are doing defending topics in my coaching, first thing I'll remind players: well, if we're doing defending, then we're going to need some place to attack. So, um, and vice versa. So you can always kind of give them that carrot that way. But I think I wrote down a couple of kind of small side of game examples that I've done over the years. Um, the first one more is uh, as an individual defending game where it's a man-marking game and you can only tackle your man. So you get a lot of dribbles, you get a lot of um, kind of driving forward with the ball, but then you get a lot of off-the-ball running and a lot of off-the-ball tracking and it can make you can make it quite competitive with players putting little scoreboards up and who's beating who and, and taking it a bit more personally that your mate's beating you. Sometimes you can you can get a, a, a bit of more energy out of session that way. Um, a recovery kind of base more side of the game, you can have put certain lines or points on, on the pitch. So if you split it into halves, thirds, quarters, whatever you want to do. And every player that hasn't recovered behind that certain point or line, that can be an extra goal if once the goal scored. So you're getting lots of recovery runs and then from the principles of play element, you're getting the compactness, you're getting the delay in order to allow your teammates to recover. Um, you're getting the control and restraint about do we commit or do we go and win the ball? And that can sneak in a few principles of play. Uh, from a unit perspective, kind of integrate and have this discussion a lot with coaches about, again, the, the low block and that emergency defending because it is an important part of the game no matter what your style is. Every team, as I said, will have to defend your penalty area at some point. Um, and a game I've used quite a lot is um, it's basically around a clean sheet game. So whoever scores first then has X amount of time, one minute, two minutes to keep a clean sheet. That's all they have to do in that next minute or so and then they win the game. And you can manipulate it with extra players on different teams and, and different pitch sizes and stuff. And then that gets a real kind of psycholo- psychological element of defending where you've scored your goal now can you consolidate and, again, it creates a little bit more low block defending, a little bit more manipulated where the other team then has to try and counteract that by scoring a goal any way they can within that time frame. And you can get quite a lot of match realism actions in that because that's a common theme in, in the game where a team scores and then straight away, is because it's probably just a human reaction where as soon as you can see, the first thought is, right, how can we get back into the game? from the attacking perspective. So then as defenders, your role will change and how the other team are attacking will change. So you have to react and adapt accordingly. Um, so there's a couple of small side of game actions. But then even if you're doing an in-possession topic or an attacking topic, you can still give, um, if you've got the luxury of multiple coaches in the session, then obviously you can split yourself in and out of possession. But if you are coaching on your own, you can always set aside defensive or out-of-possession challenges for the, the players, even though you're working as a whole on, on the in-possession topic. So it might be um, if you're working on shooting for some finishing topic, can you have a, a blocking competition with your defenders? Which defender can block the most shots? If you're working on crossing and finishing, which defender can win the most headers or have the most aerial duels? Um, 
if you're working on kind of the attacking build up or you're playing through or around or, or or over, you can highlight areas of a pitch for the defenders or the defending team to make sure the ball doesn't go through. So it might be you use a tactics board or you cone out or use spots on the pitch and say to the defensive team, make sure whatever you do, the ball doesn't go kind of through the middle or through the left side or or, or an area, any area that you want on the pitch. And even though you're still working with the attackers, the defenders have still got that little bit of a challenge to um, to focus on. And one I like doing, again, linked to the kind of clean sheet idea is it's just a clean sheet clock. So if we're doing a game, a small side of game or a phase or a function or whatever, and you're still attacking focus, I'll, as soon as the first ball is playing, I'll start my watch and I'll, I'll just time how long it takes the attacker to score a goal. So it gives the defenders that carrot of, let's see how long we can keep a clean sheet. And maybe can we even keep a clean sheet throughout the whole practice or the whole block or phase of work? So you can you can obviously focus on your topic, but still give challenges for the that counter topic, if you like. And it works both ways. If you're working on defending as, as your session, then you give the, the attackers challenges as well. Those are brilliant. Are, are there ways as well we should be making use of underloads and overloads a lot in our sessions? Yeah, definitely, because the game is um, lots of overloads and underloaded situations. Um, I think that goes back to, from my own coaching, I, I believe that the game is basically 1v1s, 2v2s, 3v3s generally, um, with, with the pitch size and, and the amount of players on the pitch and the rules of the game. Generally, the best players in the world, attack, defence, whatever, goalkeepers included, they're the best 1v1, 2v2, 3v3. Um, the best defenders are the best 1v1 defending but then they're also the best 1v1 attacking as well. So you look at the fullbacks of Trent and Robertson, for example, they're some of the best fullbacks in the world because 1v1, they're very good defending, but then attacking 1v1, they're very good. So the, the overload, underload, kind of as a practice idea, um, if you go with underloaded practices, then that's probably going to help the defenders because they have obviously more defenders. So that might be good for kind of players that are at the beginning of their football journey or or need it might be even be they need a bit more confidence to defend so that so the underload on the attackers can can help that way and it's also more realistic to the game because generally the attacks will have less attackers than, than players in the defense um and then I guess the overloaded practices will kind of flip and help the attackers more but on the flip side you can stretch and challenge defenders then and and give them a little bit of less realism but you're stretching them and and you're giving them probably more like, moments of emergency defending, more kind of last ditch, um, and try to work on that compactness as much as you can, even in a, an underloaded situation for the defence and an overload for the attackers. Um, an overload for the defenders probably could also help with playing out, playing out for the back, which is a, a growing importance in the game for, for defenders now, um, because the goalkeeper will always add that extra play and create that overload. So you can work on. I guess the, the distribution qualities from, from the defenders, the passing and the dribbling forward and the breaking lines and, and overloads can also help defenders with that transition element and the press and the counter press and, and that the mental side of the game to to react to. We've lost the ball. Now we're in, we've gone from in possession to out of possession um, and the overload, I guess, makes that a little bit easier on the defence because they'll have more numbers to press. Um, so if you want to, again, stretch and challenge, you might do it numerically even or or, or or underloaded or as we just mentioned if you want to maybe improve confidence or 
even they're just new to pressing as a topic or they're new to to what you're trying to teach them, then the overloaded situations probably gives them a little bit more success to start with. And obviously, you know, in all phases of the game, whether you're delaying, whether you're making a challenge, body shape is really important. What are some good ways that you can teach defenders about body shape? Uh, I think for me, the art of defending really is is predicting and preparing. It's thinking about the what-ifs. And it's just as important as the actual defensive action itself, if you like. Um, so something that I try and use is is just the use of your hips for particularly for the back line. So if the back four or back five are, are, are set, um, try and defend as side on as long as possible. Um, because if you're side on, then for me you can push forward to press if it's in front of you and drop off and, and recover behind if the ball goes over or around. If you side on, you can do those movements, the forwards and backwards, um, much easier than if you're standing, your hips are fully square and you're facing the pitch. Um, it, it's then a little bit more difficult to turn and then recover. Whereas if you side on, it's just a, a, a kind of a, a sliding movement forward. So that, that side on position when I'm working with, with my back four, it's, as I say, trying to defend a side on for as long as possible um, and look away from the ball as much as you can, as long as you can, without obviously forgetting that the, the, the ball is important because that will affect how you set your hips and how you set your, your body shape. And um, I guess, obviously, when you're blocking shots and blocking kind of crosses and, and blocking in general, then obviously you make yourself as big as you can. But then when you're defending and it's maybe recovering behind or it's a push forward, then you have to be obviously agile and on your toes and alert. Um, so, so that kind of change in, in, in mentality and changing in how you set up physically again with your hips. Um, something that, that's, that's really important for, for body shape, again, in terms of blocking, is trying to block with your closest foot because good attackers, they can twist, they can turn both ways, they can add disguise, they can make your life really difficult. And if you always block with your, your stronger foot, which I see quite a lot of young players do, um, say if they're, they're very right-footed, but they're on the left side of the pitch and then they get attacked around the outside and really they should be just blocking with their left foot, but they'll go with their right because it's the stronger foot. They'll go across their body and their legs are tangled and before you know it, you're facing the wrong way or your legs are tangled and, and you can get beat 1v1. Um, so blocking with more effective feet as well compared to your strongest foot is is pretty important for, for body shape because as I said attackers can be very tricky and nimble and, and they can be very good at, at going both ways. You mentioned before as well the physicality of the game and obviously with youth players you've got you know a lot of them are still still building up their strength and then you'll have players that are you know a foot taller than another player they'll have completely different strength levels yeah. How do you kind of get around that? What are some defensive strategies you can teach them as they do build their strength up? Uh, I guess it comes back to a little bit on the on the body shape stuff where, you know, so the art of defending is you're predicting and you're preparing. So you might have a strength deficit, but can you make that up in other ways? Can you make that up with your positioning where if the ball's going to go into the attack and you know they're stronger than you, can you either prepare earlier and maybe pinch the ball before it even gets there and, and beat them with, with intelligence and agility? So you're kind of cutting the problem out before it's even occurred. Or is it a case of 
not competing in that moment when you know you might lose the first part of the individual duel and maybe dropping off a little bit and staying compact and defending with with your mates essentially to then make the next phase of the attack harder. So I guess it's kind of thinking differently to competing, as you say, with that potential absence of strength for the for the as they mature and grow. Um, but I think within the modern game, the, the speed of play and, and speed and pace and acceleration and deceleration is just as important as strength now. Um, so, with, as we've mentioned already, about pressing is very important and because you might be defending high up the pitch or you might be defending in the middle or you might be defending um, low in front of your own goal. And for me, that's what separates the quality of divisions and leagues is the speed of play. Um, and that goes for defenders as well, how quickly they can um, get out to the ball, press, accelerate, decelerate, um, how quickly they can recover, how quickly they can create compactness and get close to your teammates. Um, so if you can't compete in the kind of strength department, say predict and prepare for the next phase, it might be a predict and say you go forward and you intercept and you cut it out at the source, or it might be a prepare and, and defend a little bit deeper or a little bit differently or with, with compactness and using your teammates to compete against kind of players that might be physically more developed in a strength um, in a strength aspect. But I would never obviously encourage players not to duel because a lot of dueling is timing and, as we discussed, body shape. So you can compete against players that are physically bigger than you because ultimately, as you get older, players will always be bigger than smaller than you because of the way you know humans will just grow differently in, in, in your physical makeup and your DNA. So... You can't just always rely on oh, they're bigger than me. I'm, I can't defend against that. Um, I guess there's there's a there's probably a psychological element to it as well. That confidence to to actually go and, and duel and um, sometimes it just takes a couple of successful goes and then players might think well, actually I can compete physically. It might have an edge on me more often than not, but there are moments where I can compete physically. Thanks, Sam. So I want to ask you about your book that you referenced earlier on. Um, can you tell us a bit about it and how it came about? Sure. So um, initially it kind of came about, so I've done a lot of analysis throughout my career um, alongside my coaching because I've always felt it's quite important to be able to understand and study the game as long as well as being a coach, kind of being good off the grass as well as on the grass, kind of that that balance of both roles makes each role better, if you like, um, the, the kind of yin to the yang sort of thing. So I've always been interested in analysis stuff and I've always done my own stuff as well as kind of as, as employed roles in, in clubs and then more recently um, with the coach's voice. And it came about initially during the first lockdown when um, obviously you're not coaching, you're not at work, you're on furlough, you're not doing too much. And I did a lot of kind of catching up on CPDs and analysis and coaching and all sorts of different education stuff, listening to podcasts like this and you know, just catching up on on all sorts of stuff. And then I was gradually building my own kind of little, little bit of library of work. And then um, with, again, another lockdown and more furlough, it was kind of a case of, well, let's try and collate all my work and put it into a, a project. And it kind of grew and grew. And then um, then discussions with the publisher came about. And, and before you know it, it was going to be a, a published book. Um, and I was interested in all the tactical stuff of the game, because I, I really enjoy, particularly at the minute in England over the last few years with so many different coaches coming to the country and 
doing different ideas and, and ultimately having success in lots of different ways. Um, that, that was really interesting. And then I thought, well, how would some of the pandemic affect um, any of the, the game from a technical, tactical or, or any kind of part of it? So part of the book is in the pandemic. So obviously the main factor is there's no fans. That, that's the, that was a huge, had a huge impact on the kind of the home and away bias that has always exist, existed in, in professional sport um, kind of totally went. And I think it was the first season ever where there was more away wins um, than home wins or more away points. Um, and then obviously the growing influence of VAR, um, the, the, the differences in substitutions, which has come back around in discussion quite recently about do we go back to five subs? Because I think England was the only country so out of all the top five leagues in Europe that didn't have the five subs again after after the, the project restart. Um, and the games, the, the project restart games in the summer um, had the five subs and then the, the, the season, last season, didn't. Um, and then the scheduling issues with games played almost like every day and all the time. And you're seeing that at the minute now with COVID cancelling games, there's going to be more scheduling issues with Obviously, the Euros getting cancelled and then trying to throw that in, and then the World Cup is in, is in the winter this year, so that's going to affect, um, you know, so many scheduling issues, which affects injuries, which affects kind of how players can recover, and all those kind of aspects that affect performance uh, is mentioned in the book, and then kind of a, a lot of it is is then the tactical ideas that were used across the season, um, and I tried to look at lots of different teams rather than just talking about the, the top three or four or the top kind of six. So there's there's teams competing at the bottom, teams competing in the middle and then teams competing at the top um, throughout the book. And there's every every kind of um, kind of idea and style of play it is looked at. So whether the teams pressed high and were really aggressive, whether they sat in, in, the, in the mid blocks or whether they defended deep. So we've been talking about defenders defending high, medium and low. I looked at different strategies from different teams, how, how they defended and how they were successful doing that. Then I looked at transitions and teams that were good counter-attacking or teams that were good pressing. And then I looked at the attacking side of things as well, about how teams that decided to play out, so what did they do well? Teams that kind of created chances, how did they create? Um, and then how did they score goals and finish? So kind of every moment of the game has, a, has an input and has a look. And I think it was important to look at as many different styles of play because you can be successful so many different ways. And and as I say, because it was the, hopefully the only season where fans can't go to games and hopefully the only season in the proper part of the pandemic that um, we don't go back to that situation. But because it's a, such a unique season last year, um, I thought it'd be quite a, a good one to look at in detail. And um, Unfortunately, due to the way of the world at, at the time, so it was. So I finished the booking in around the end of May, which was when the season finished for a, a launch in the summer. But kind of every issue that you can think of under the sun, from obviously COVID, then we had the Suez Canal getting blocked, which distri- which stopped distribution and shipping, the lorry driver issues, Brexit, anything you can think of, we had an issue with distribution. So it took a while to to get it over the line, and it was released kind of in November. So it was five or six months later than planned. Um, and we said if we knew it was going to be released in November, then I could have put a potentially even a bit more detail into the pandemic. Now more data gets come out, more injuries info gets released. 
which is a bit of a shame. But ultimately, um, I was glad to get it over the line. And it was a project that, um, I don't want to say it wasn't planned, but it was kind of snowballed quite quickly. And it was really fun to, to, to be involved in. Do you think there's enough coaching books out there? Would you encourage coaches that have an idea like you did to to really go for it? Absolutely, because I don't think you've necessarily got anything to lose. I've never, I've never had it as like a life goal or a career ambition to go right. I'm going to write a book, or I'm going to write a book by um, age whatever. It was, um, it was, uh, it kind of came up as yeah, as, as consequence of as I say being on furlough a lot and the way of the world and it was a topic I was interested in and and ultimately I was working on the idea of the, the tactical side of things anyway and um and as I said the publishers really enjoyed my, my idea in the pitch and and they felt felt value in, in in the idea um and I think it got me to to think about the game a lot differently and think about um I guess a little bit think about your journey as a coach and where you've been and what you've done and and how that's kind of molded your ideas and and um ultimately one of the arts of coaching is communicating your information and your ideas across so doing a book is probably I would say still one of the hardest challenges I've had to be able to convey your ideas and what you've seen to um to, to, to an audience um and it was just another another one of those challenges that I think a lot of coaches certainly you know, should look to take on in some ways, whether you, you, know, you set up your own podcast or whether you, you write a book or whether you, whatever it is you do, um, it, it ultimately helps you learn and helps you get better and it will help you off the field, but it will also help you on the field as well. That was the voice of Sam Hudson of Aston Villa. Thanks to Sam for his time and expertise. And thanks to you for listening to the Soccer Coach Weekly podcast. For more from us, join us again next week or visit soccercoachweekly.net for practice plans, advice, interviews and much more. I'm Steph Fairbairn. See you again soon.